Well, last week we, we looked at, uh, as a body, at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Tom explained from really the whole chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, that um, as Paul explains his ministry, as he thinks of his ministry to the Corinthian church, that it's, it's normally in the context of suffering and faith that a person declares the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which then God extends his grace to more and more people, drawing them from darkness to light. Well, this morning we're going to drop into the short book of Jonah and further consider the nature and the heart of God in regards to seeing his grace extend to more and more people who will then worship him. The living God is a missionary God. And one of the most vivid illustrations and confirmations in the Old Testament of God's saving heart for the nations is the story of Jonah. But before we even get into the book of Jonah itself, let me explain a couple things about this, uh, this letter that's really a brief and magnificent glimpse into the heart of God. In the original Hebrew Bible, Jonah wasn't a separate book like it is in the Bible on your laps this morning. Instead, it was a part of a compilation of 12 prophets, cleverly called the Twelve, uh, including Hosea, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, and guys like that. The consistent theme throughout the Twelve is sin, punishment, and restoration. In other words, how is God going to deal with sin? How is he going to punish rebellion? And how is he going to restore people to worship him? Each of the books in the Twelve deals with these questions, but, but Jonah addresses these questions in a unique way. Unlike the other minor prophets, Jonah comes in the form of a story or a narrative. And like all the other narratives of the Old Testament, that means that it doesn't directly teach us a doctrine, but rather it illustrates a doctrine for us. And that's precisely what we want to uncover this morning. We want to know what it is that this story is intended to teach us. Well, this is where the book of Jonah has often been served a great injustice. Because it's so often taught as a lesson about the importance of obeying God and you better do it immediately or you'll get what's coming to you. However, this this book is not primarily about Jonah's disobedience. In fact, it's not primarily even about Jonah. The key character in this story is God himself. He is the hero who saves Nineveh. He is the one who shines forth as being worthy of our emulation. Well, to see this, we're going to do kind of a survey of the book this morning and then settle in on chapter 4 and derive a couple of observations from that chapter. But before we go any further, um, let me stop and pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for your grace and even to consider these missions opportunities that you and your grace and compassion have allowed us to partner with. We're we're thankful for that and pray that as we consider uh, your heart for the nations from the book of Jonah this morning, that you would open our eyes to your compassion, and uh, Lord, don't leave us unmoved by your word, but I pray that you would uh, cause us to, to be refreshed by your spirit, convicted where necessary, prodded along and moved towards the good works that you've called us to. Lord, I pray that uh, the result of this would be that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. We're dependent on your spirit for these things, and so we pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Jonah 1.1, the story begins. Out Out of compassion for the city of Nineveh, God comes to Jonah and tells him to go and warn this city that God is going to judge their sin. He says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, 
that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Then verse 3 actually tells us two different times that Jonah, instead of going and obeying, actually wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. But notice that the text doesn't yet tell us why Jonah wanted to flee. At any rate, he gets on a ship to get away from God, and a storm comes. The sailors on the ship begin panicking, but more importantly, the text tells us they begin praying. The prophet is sleeping while the pagans are praying. They cast lots to find out whose fault this storm is, and the lot falls on Jonah. So now they know that they're suffering a storm because of the sin of Jonah. Yet, despite Jonah's direction to throw them overboard, and and despite the fact that it's his fault, they don't throw him over. Instead, they row all the harder to get back to dry land. As the storm continues to prevail, they finally decide to hurl Jonah into the waves. But even then, they don't do it carelessly. Notice at the end of chapter 1 that they actually commit their decision to the Lord with these words. O Lord. You'll notice in your Bible that Lord there is in all caps, meaning that at this point, they're actually praying to the God of Israel. They say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And with that, they throw God's sleepy prophet into the sea, which instantly ceases from raging. The conclusion of the sailor's role in the story is found there in verse 16 of chapter 1, where it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see what happened right there? Before we even make it to Nineveh, God is saving people along the way. He displays his power to these pagans. And despite Jonah's apathy, God saves these men. They're converted and they become worshipers of God. Jonah is disobedient, but God is saving people. And with the calm sea all around, it says they made their vows to the God of Israel. Meanwhile, Jonah's situation isn't quite so comfortable. God used a fish to rescue him from drowning, but that means that he's pinned in the belly of this fish, surrounded by hot digestive juices, which I'm sure was fun. His arms were too short to box with God. And now, having experienced the judgment of God and fearing for his own life, Jonah calls out to God in chapter 2. And the most significant words of this, this prayer that's a chapter long, it's really in the form of a psalm, come right at the end of this prayer where he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. His theology is better than his obedience. And yet God patiently listens to Jonah because he has plans for Nineveh. So God causes this fish to vomit Jonah out on the dry land and the story begins again in chapter 3. God comes to Jonah a second time and says, arise, go to Nineveh. And from whatever beach Jonah landed on, this time he heads in the right direction. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches the message that God has given him. And without hesitation, the people of Nineveh, just like the pagan sailors, believe in God. So how are the Ninevites portrayed in this book? Well, they may have been murderous people, as I'm sure you've heard. But here in Jonah, they're presented as contrite, broken, and repentant over their sin. After all, the king of Nineveh says in chapter 3, verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, they do repent. The whole city repents, which is the very thing that God loves. 
Psalm 51, 17 says, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And God does relent from destroying that city. Well, this is interesting. In chapter 1, you have these pagan sailors who come to fear the Lord exceedingly and make vows to him. And then in chapter 3, the people of Nineveh believe God and turn from their evil ways. You see what's happening here? God's redemptive scope is expanding. The sovereign Lord's compassion is extending beyond the border of Israel. There was always a place in God's heart for for the nations. And and the wanderer uh, who joined himself by faith to the children of Israel, God had told the children of Israel to welcome that person. But here now, rather than just welcoming the nations, Jonah is called to go to the nations. He's been called by God to be almost like a prehistoric missionary. Well, now we come to chapter 4. And the lessons of the book of Jonah are really found in this chapter. This is where we draw our key observations about this book. So look at chapter 4, verse 1 with me. At this point, Jonah is, is still in the city of Nineveh, and he sees the repentance going on all around him. And verse 1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So now we finally learn of Jonah's miserable motivation. He says, "I, I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Well, there it is. That's why Jonah ran. It wasn't because God's call was simply scary. It wasn't because, it it was because Jonah didn't share God's heart. It wasn't just that he was disobedient to the command. It was that he fundamentally miscalculated the character of God. Well, our first observation then is that the call of God to Jonah is rooted in the compassion of God for Nineveh. The call of God to Jonah was rooted in the compassion of God for Nineveh. Jonah acknowledges that he knew that God was compassionate and that that is the reason he ran. It was because he knew the character of God, that that God is a gracious God and merciful. The word that Jonah highlights there is merciful, compassionate. It's the same word that is used in Psalm 103 verse 13 where it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God's compassion towards Nineveh is like the compassion of a father to his children. Look again there at the end of chapter 4. At this point, God is reasoning with Jonah, patiently enduring Jonah's hard heart. Jonah is angry that the plant that had given him shade and comfort had died. And in verse 10, the Lord says to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Well, that's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If, if Jonah pitied the plant for which he didn't labor, which came up and perished in one night, how much more should God pity the city of Nineveh? an entire city of people he had created, people who had his image in them. 
He had cared for this city for generations. This was one of the oldest cities in the world, founded by Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah, long, long ago. How could a God of intense compassion overlook the welfare of a city of thousands? No, Jonah didn't misunderstand God's compassion. In fact, he knew from the beginning of the story that God might relent from disaster. Again, he, he was just unimpressed by God's mercy. He didn't just misunderstand the command. He didn't just disobey the command. He fundamentally miscalculated the value of God's nature. God has a heart for missions. He has a heart to see all the nations, all tribes and peoples and tongues, to come to be rescued from their idolatry, to be God-fearers. That's who God is. And that heart didn't start with Jesus. God has always been that way. Jonah just didn't value that part of God. He only valued the part of God that had chosen Israel and not the part that loved the nations. In other words, he made his own God. He thought God was Jewish. So he determined not to function as a mouthpiece of God's compassion. He was a prophet. His job was to say the things that God had told him to say, and yet he submits his letter of resignation. If that's the job, I don't want it. He stands out as one of the most successful evangelists of all times, and yet perhaps the most miserable. But what about you? If God, out of his compassion, leveled the same call to you that he did to Jonah, would you do it? Would you make disciples of other nations? Because he has leveled that call to you. Just like God said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Jesus in Matthew 28 says to his followers, go, make disciples of all nations. So let me be specific. When when was the last time that you attempted to have a gospel conversation with someone? And think for a minute, what is it that prevents us from fulfilling this command? Isn't it the fact that we don't bend our lives towards obedience? It's like we're busy doing our own thing, waiting for the perfect opportunity, maybe, and when that opportunity doesn't show up, we don't share the gospel. God has made the call, but we move towards a hundred other things. We just don't move towards obedience. And obedience on this matter isn't something that we can just add to a weekly checklist. Again, the call of God to Jonah was rooted in God's character and his compassion. This is something that must be rooted in the character of God. We need to grasp and embrace his compassion. The moral of the story isn't to go hand out more gospel literature. No, the the lesson from Jonah is that God is abounding in steadfast love and compassion. Thus, shortcomings and failure in our own compassion reveal a shortcoming in our comprehension of the grace of God. A lack of desire to see the gospel spread to cities of thousands reflects hearts that are unmoved by the kind of pity and mercy that are so integral to who God is. We have hearts that are underwhelmed by the compassion of God. We're far too unimpressed with the mercy that he has shown to us. We don't revel in his compassion towards us as we should. 
And so we don't reflect his compassion towards others as we should. You may say, well, I'm not running from this command like Jonah was. And the American church may not be running from the command to go. But are we as a church and as individuals going? You know, you may not be running from the command to go, but are you going? So we may not be fleeing, but if we're staying and not going, it's still disobedience. Let me think with you for a minute. What, what would it look like for you to go? Well, this is what we must not do. We, we cannot measure our responsiveness to the Great Commission by our giving money. We must also evaluate our personal engagement with missions. As Americans, we're prone to think that we can solve everything by throwing money at it. If there's a problem, just give more money to it. And it's almost like we as a church and as individuals think that we can buy obedience to missions by giving. We reason somehow that we're obedient because a certain percentage of our church budget is designated towards missions. But while giving is a significant, necessary, and appropriate response to Jesus' command to go and make disciples, we can't stop with monetary benchmarks. We have to ask, how is our congregation engaged in missions? Not just missional giving, but also missional going. How am I personally engaged in walking out the Great Commission in Raleigh, outside of Raleigh? What might God be calling you to do? Well, This will require a little prayer and holy imagination on your part. What will it look like for you to have kingdom feet, to go like God calls Jonah to do here? You know, God isn't going to give you a specific voice to go to a specific person. He won't call out a home address and name for you to go to. So how are you going to take his call to go and make disciples of all nations and appropriate that in your life? Let me encourage you to begin thinking about your immediate neighborhood. Before you even think about engaging the world at large by doing something like a short-term mission trip, think about your own community. What are you doing in your neighborhood? What are you doing here in Raleigh? Maybe you should think for a moment, what is it that holds you back from this call? There may be big structural pieces that need to change. I have a friend who's a pastor in Denver who who sensed this this urge to to engage the the Great Commission more and, and realized that there were big structural pieces, logistics about his life that needed to change. And so he moved his family into the needy community in downtown Denver uh, where their church meets. He joined the Homeowners Association. He sits on the council of the school district, all with the intention of affecting that community with the gospel. He has tried to engage not just the church, but also the community with the gospel of Christ. He's asked, what will it look like for me to engage with missional living? And then done what's necessary to answer that question. How can I join God in his, in the, in his heart for missions? Well, that brings us to our second observation from the book of Jonah, which is this. That the compassion of God issues forth in a comprehensive vision for worldwide redemption. Let me say that again. The, the compassion of God issues forth in a comprehensive vision for worldwide redemption. 
And this second observation from the book of Jonah is is a little bit broader. We just said that the call of God is rooted in the compassion of God, which is an observation about God's character. But now we're saying that the compassion of God issues forth in a comprehensive vision for worldwide redemption, which teaches us something about God's plan, which is a plan for saving the nations. You see, in this story of Jonah, the role that Jonah plays is not his alone. It's really the role of the nation of Israel. Jonah represents Israel. He stands as a picture of what they were like. Self-righteous, but not really righteous at all. Happy to have God for themselves, but not so happy about the character of God. Happier with um, themselves for having God than they were with God for having them. They were arrogant, inward, and unconcerned with the plight of those beyond their ethnic border. So let me illustrate that. Have you ever been driving down the highway and and some guy in a a bright blue sports car zooms past you? Well, you you may not have noticed, but Stacy and I have uh, a very old station wagon. And so I'll admit that when that happens to us, it's just kind of a a wound to my pride. But um, the next thing that happens in my mind after that wound is um, this, this sinister hope that maybe, just maybe, around the next corner, there will be a state trooper. Because, after all, that guy is breaking the law and he deserves to suffer the wrath of the law, am I right? But, of course, meanwhile, I'm going five to ten over, probably. And I just presume mercy for myself. Of course, the state trooper wouldn't pull me over. Well, this is Jonah. He wants justice for the other guy. And that's Israel. They, uh, that is the Jews, were brought up in ignorance as to God's saving purposes for the nations. They just wanted justice for the Gentiles. But God had plans of salvation. In fact, we know from Acts that it required literally a vision from heaven to take away this ignorance from the Jews about God's plan for the Gentiles. Israel didn't perceive God's ways accurately. They were God's children, but they didn't understand their father. They misunderstood their own history. They went back and read Genesis 12, where God made a promise to Abraham, their father. They read that promise where God says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And although they caught that part about God's blessing to them as a nation, they missed the part about God's blessing through them to all the families of the world. They conceived of God as a tribal deity. God was their God, not the God of the nations. They read the Psalms, they loved the Psalms, and they came to Psalm 67, and they they loved verse 1 where it says, May God be gracious to us, and bless us, and make his face shine upon us. But they neglected verse 2, where it goes on to say, So that your name may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. God's blessing was intended to display his name and power to the nations. God's blessing for Israel was not static. He intended to bless the world through his people, to bless them so that his name and power would be known over all the earth. 
And ultimately, because Jonah and Israel failed at their task of being a witness, a light to the nations, God would send a new Israel, a new light. Jesus said in John, I am the light of the world. Meaning that where Israel failed to bring light and knowledge to the nations about the heart of God, Jesus would succeed. Jesus would come and live a perfect life and yet die a sinner's death, suffering the full fury of God's wrath against the sin of all the nations so that through him all the families of the world might be blessed indeed. And thus what Israel was always intended to do from their very inception Again, that promise of Abraham, in you all the families of the world should be blessed. That actually happens through Christ. Well, in the book of Jonah, this plan is on the move. You see God's compassion extending beyond the border of Israel. You see God as a missionary God who wants to see the nations become worshipers. Then Jesus comes. And you see this comprehensive plan for redemption move forward in a definitive way. The gospel advances. And the end of this storyline, the goal of God's expansive plan for worldwide redemption, is seen in the vision of Revelation chapter 5, where John is in the throne room of heaven, and he looks around and he sees all the saints kneeling before the throne, singing a song. And what is the song that they're singing? What is the goal of God's plan of worldwide redemption? The song they're singing is this, Worthy is the Lamb, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see, Revelation tells us that God's expansive plan for the nations that we begin to see expand in the book of Jonah, this plan will prevail. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, that verse has massive implications for the church. One theologian said it's the single most important verse in the word of God for the people of God. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to the nations. The question is, how will that gospel be proclaimed throughout the whole world? How will God's comprehensive vision for worldwide redemption be completed? And the answer to those questions is through us. Through the people in this room this morning. Through the church of Christ. God said to Jonah, go and proclaim my message to Nineveh. And Jesus says to the church, go, make disciples of all nations. God's plan for seeing this vision of worldwide redemption this vision that ends in Revelation 5 with all tribes and tongues and language and people worshiping around the throne is that the church might carry his plan forward now. That the church might be going to all the nations. So let me give you four levels 
on which you may specifically engage the call to join in God's missionary vision for the nations. Four points of application, ways you can engage missional living. Number one, pray confidently. Pray confidently. If this vision for worldwide redemption is God's plan, then it will succeed. If revelation is accurate, this vision that that God has marked out for himself people from every tribe and language and people and nation, if that's accurate, then we can pray with confidence. We can pray that God's plan will proceed, that he will call people from this church to participate in that plan in tangible ways. So let me encourage you to grab Operation World, for instance a book that's on our, in the bookstore in the back. And it goes through all the nations of the world and gives points for how to pray for the nations. Let me encourage you to pick up that book and, and use it as an individual or as a family to pray for gospel advance in the nations of the world. As Luke mentioned earlier, use the weekly prayer guide that's on the website each week to pray for the local and global disciple-making efforts of this church. Again, Matthew 24, 14, one day when this work is done, the end will come. But until that day, we must continue to pray with confidence that God would accomplish his work and that he would accomplish it through us. Number two, give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. There's a book that, that we've used um, in, in developing our philosophy of missions here at Christ Covenant called When Helping Hurts. It's an excellent book. And near the beginning of the book, it says that the Bible's teaching should cut to the heart of North American Christians. By any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. So what should we think about that? Well, again, let me take your mind back to Psalm 67 for a moment. God bless us. Make your face shine upon us. Why? So that your name may be known in all the earth. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the the Corinthian church about their giving. They're giving to support uh, other churches. And in chapter 9, Paul says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You may not serve in China but you can contribute generously, sacrificially to the work that God is doing around the world. Number three, welcome graciously. Welcome graciously. What do I mean by that? Well, this, that that the nations are no longer limited to the far-off ends of the earth. Here in Raleigh, there are refugees from all over the world. Burma, Nepal, Iraq, the Republic of the Congo, Refugee families that are Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim. Our church is there. And we need more people who will engage those families, working not only to meet their physical needs, but also people who will develop relationships with them and and walk through the Bible with them and find new avenues in which we can address those nations with the gospel of Christ. We must welcome, with grace and gospel intent, the nations that God brings to us. And number four, go intentionally. Go intentionally. 
That handout in your bulletin reflects numerous people who, by the grace of God, have gone out. Some right here in Raleigh, uh, working to advance the gospel among refugees. Some who are going out in the Middle East to plant churches and suffer for the gospel. Legitimate persecution. But who else in this room might God call to leave this body and see the gospel advanced among the unreached tribes and languages and people around the world? Who will join the for a year or two or permanently? Who will pioneer a new missions work among some unreached people group, a, a new tribe or tongue that is not yet around the throne of Christ? You know, there, there are a total of 16,445 people groups in the world. Six, over 16,000 people groups in the world. And 7,060 of them remain unreached. That means that 2.9 billion people, that's almost 42% of the world's population, are in people groups without an established gospel witness. That vision in Revelation 5 of people from every language and tribe, every nation and tongue, must compel the church forward on mission with our missionary God to see his gospel advance in all the world. May our missionary God give us grace to join his mission of saving the world. Let's pray. Lord, we we are thankful for your compassion. Your compassion that has saved us. This, This plan that we see expanding in the book of Jonah where you begin to move towards all the nations Lord, we have benefited from that. We have been drawn near by Christ who has preached peace to us, who has reconciled us to you despite the fact that we were far off aliens without you and without hope in this world. We we have benefited from your compassion. You have adopted us into your family. We were children of wrath with a miserable eternal inheritance And you adopted us into your family. You became our father. You gave us a new inheritance. One that is undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven for us. We have benefited from your compassion. And Lord, I pray that for myself and for this church that we would not waste that compassion that we would not be unimpressed by it, that we would not miscalculate your goodness towards us, but that in seeking to reflect that compassion, we would join your vision of saving the world, that we would go out and preach this gospel, and that by it you would save people from every language and tribe and tongue and people. Pray that you would give us wisdom and grace in the way that we pursue this call. In the name of Christ, amen.